Well, brethren, if you could uh, again turn with me in your Bibles to um, Romans and chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. While you are turning there, let me quickly um, walk over the land that we have already covered. Those of you who were here uh, in the morning will remember that I deliberately began with the subject of inheriting the kingdom or entering into the kingdom. And there we spent a bit of time uh, in First Corinthians and chapter 6, looking at our greatest challenge in facing the fact that being born sinners, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We also then went on to look at the reality of our uh, enslavement, our grave enslavement, as we saw the different sins that we as human beings are guilty of and the need for us again to specifically face our individual sins, the sins that enslave us, so that we are not belittling them, uh, we are not excusing them, we are recognizing that this is an enslavement that we desperately need to be delivered from. And then finally, we went on to see the glorious salvation that God um, wrought among the Corinthians, and indeed he has been doing so across history. He is a God who does it even today, and for those who have not yet experienced it, they too can if they call upon the Savior. Then in the evening, we began to look at this passage of Scripture based on the assumption that we are now individuals who are on the inside and we are seeking to understand something of the life of God in the context of his kingdom. And what I said was that Romans uh, 14 and verse 17, which says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, is a summary of the essence of the Christian faith. I referred to it as a, a, a statement that carries the world on its shoulders. And therefore, an appropriate and proper understanding of this text gives you a sense of direction. It gives you a sense of priority within the context of the Christian faith as you live out your life among the people of God. And we saw that especially as we saw the context in which the Apostle Paul said these words. We noted that it was in a context where uh, Jews and Gentiles that had been religiously divided for centuries were now coming into the church on a common footing. It wasn't that the, the Gentiles were coming in as visitors and consequently the Jews determined the terms Rather, they were both coming in on the basis of Calvary, Christ having purchased our salvation through his death on the cross. How were they, with these religious differences that had caused them to develop different qualms and, and, and so forth and scruples, how were they now to, to dwell together? And what the Apostle Paul was essentially doing in this statement was to help believers to come to appreciate that which genuinely makes the Christian faith stand out. In other words, it's distinct peculiarities. Now, 
what we did yesterday was to see, first of all, the meaning of kingdom. We'll touch a little bit more on that this evening. But we spend the rest of our time looking at the, the king himself, the, the potentate, the, the one who rules. In our text, we are told that this is the kingdom of God. Who is this God that is being spoken of as the one who rules over this kingdom? And we went all the way to Genesis 1. We uh, spent a bit of time looking at the implications of the statement that was there that in the beginning God created. And I trust that especially as we went prior to Genesis 1 verse 1. In other words, as we looked at this God without this creation, I trust we were challenged to appreciate how this God does not need us for his own sense of fulfillment and blessedness. That in the fellowship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is complete fulfillment, complete blessedness. Uh, that this God, unlike us, does not need anything outside himself like oxygen or food in order to be sustained. He doesn't even grow old at all. He remains as young, if we could ever use that term, as he's ever been for all eternity. We then went on finally to peep into the throne room of this kingdom uh, where he reigns. And we made our way all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And I trust that uh, you were able to uh, join the angels of heaven to worship there in his presence. Today, we move on to consider what life is like in this kingdom. And we're still back to Romans 14 and verse 17. And because of the fact that the Apostle Paul, in describing the distinct peculiarities of the kingdom, because he begins with this negative statement, um, that's really where we will end for tonight. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As I said for tonight, I want us to end on that negative note. It is not a matter of eating and drinking. How are we to appreciate this? Well, first of all, let's again go back to the fact that the Apostle Paul uses this word kingdom for the first time in the whole of this epistle. That in itself should be a wake-up call to all of us. That there must have been a thought in his mind that he realized would only be best described by bringing in the concept of kingdom. Yesterday, I defined kingdom as that realm, the area that a king has rule over. So it's a king's dominion. It's no doubt a phrase that the, the biblical writers were borrowing from the, the natural world. In other words, there were already kingdoms that were in, in real existence uh, in their own history. Uh, you, you had, for instance, the, uh, the, the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, prior to that, you had the Assyrian kingdom. 
and then you had uh, the Persian um, kingdom and in due season you had the Greeks coming in and at the time of the apostles you had the, the Roman kingdom and to borrow a more modern term we would be speaking in terms of the Roman Empire. Well, uh, most of us are better able to relate to empires by referring to the, the British Empire. And it's, it's really a kingdom. It's uh, an area where the king of England and in due season the various queens of England would be exercising their rule. In fact, uh, at one time, the, the sphere was so wide as far as the British Empire is concerned that it would be said that the sun never sets on the British Empire because it had taken up more than 25% of uh, the, the land uh, space on this little globe of ours. So it's, it's really this concept that the biblical writers um, borrowed in order to, to express a truth. And it is now a, a spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth is the fact that uh, the way in which we, we have realms that have been conquered by the armies of a king, and consequently, they are now subjects to that king, that's the way in which God is indeed conquering the world, and in this case, with his gospel, but bringing in those who are now subjects to him. And so that's really the concept that is here, over and above the one that we saw yesterday, which is the kingdom that in fact does rule the entire universe because God in that sense is king. Now, there are one or two differences between this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom here, and the kingdoms of this world. One of them is the fact that those of us who are now within this kingdom, we have a, a permanent dwelling there. Once we have come in, we have, to borrow a more worldly term, permanent residence. Now, I know that uh, the various nations of the world uh, speak in terms of giving us permanent residence. But I hope we know that despite those claims, we still die uh, and our residence is over. But here is a kingdom where nothing like that happens. You come in and you are a possessor of eternal life. The king who is there becomes your king, not only for time, but also for eternity. And so you love him, you submit to him, you obey him, you worship him, not only now, not only while you've got your breath in this life, but indeed it's going to be your chief activity forever and ever and ever. Now, brethren, let's admit it, that when we were coming into this kingdom, that was not the primary thought on our minds. Unless you were hyper-spiritual at the point of your conversion. There were two things that would have been primarily in your mind at the point of entry into this kingdom. Number one, it was the subject ripped you. 
forgiveness of sin. That's the issue that gripped you. You recognized the fact that you had sinned against God. Your conscience was screaming out at you. You realized that you were on the wrong side of this king. Therefore, you needed the terms of peace. You needed to have your sins forgiven. You needed to be reconciled to this king of kings, this lord of lords. And consequently, as soon as you were given the answer to this great question, how can my sins be forgiven? And you realized that it was through the shed blood of the Son of God, you fled to the foot of the cross that your sins might be forgiven. The second aspect that we'd have been concerned about is the, the fact that you, you did not want to go to hell for your sins. You wanted to go to heaven. You, you, your sense of joy was some place in the future where you would not be paying for your sins. And consequently, you wanted to know how you could change your destination from hell to heaven. Again, it's simply saying the same thing that we saw earlier. In other words, how can my sins be forgiven? And so, when you, you, you found the answer... You were not so much thinking in terms of the day-to-day life that you were going to be involved with in the kingdom. No, no, you were simply thinking, praise the Lord, my destination has changed. I'm going to heaven when I die. But soon after, you got converted. You found yourself among others fellow travelers to Zion who are inside the kingdom. You realized that it's not simply my sins have been forgiven in the past. I'm going to heaven in the future. You realized there is a life to be lived in the now with other imperfect human beings in the kingdom. And that's where the Apostle Paul is wrestling with issues here. It's with individuals who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus. They they have surrendered to him. They've abandoned their sins. They, they, They are looking forward to heaven, but they haven't arrived there yet. And then as they begin to look at one another, they begin to see things they don't like about one another. But you see, their legs are tied to each other. They they are together in the kingdom. They can't just wish each other away. They can't. (laughs) They, they, they They have to pray together. And There's nothing as difficult as being in the same prayer meeting with that person who rubs you the wrong way all the time. You you can't pray. And when he prays, you can't say amen to his prayer. In fact, the moment the person walks into the prayer meeting, you go, oh, no. The prayer meeting is spoiled. 
And yet, as we know, prayer is the very engine room that drives the kingdom of God forward. Similarly, the church is an educational institution. It, it's a place you come to learn from one another. There is nothing more difficult for a church when there is disaffection in the church. It spoils and it kills the educational aspect of the church. In fact, that's what Paul goes on to speak about towards the end, um, rather in verse 19, when he says, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace, and then he says, and for mutual upbuilding. The moment somebody hands to you a glass of water and you are thirsty, you're about to grab it, then you see who it is who's giving it to you. Suddenly you say, I'm not thirsty. I'm not thirsty. I'm all right. I'm all right. And that's basically what begins to happen in the context of the church. You left home very excited. We're going to church today and you arrive. And then when they announce who's preaching, you go, oh, no. How I wish I knew earlier. I would have gone to the other church to visit this weekend. (laughs) The life in the kingdom becomes difficult, if not altogether impossible. Let me add one more aspect with respect to the, the common life. And it is this, that the kingdom itself It grows in terms of souls getting saved. It grows in terms of a lot of evangelistic and missions activity. It grows as we hold hands together in order to be productive for the kingdom. And that's been true concerning any of the previous kingdoms we're referring to in the natural world. And that's what has happened with respect to the Christian church. It goes forward as not simply that you are meeting to pray and that you are meeting to to learn from one another. It is that you are doing things together. So for instance... This evening, we had somebody playing the piano, someone else playing some musical instruments here, someone with a beautiful voice singing for us. Those people, they don't just walk in here and they just do things together. They've had to learn to rehearse, to listen to one another, etc., to pray together. And here we were benefiting from their collective effort. That's the way the Christian church goes forward. It is as we do things together. But where we have issues with one another, that can't happen. And hence, we we basically shoot ourselves in the foot. The church hits a stalemate and we can't go forward. Nobody wants to work with people that they have issues with. Nobody. So when the Apostle Paul in this chapter is saying, let's go to verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then adds, 
but not to quarrel over opinions. He knows what he's talking about. He knows that unless you settle some of these basic issues, you will soon have very serious difficulties because you start quarreling over those issues to the point where what you are supposed to be doing together becomes impossible. So, it is this common life of the kingdom that makes you start raising fundamental questions. One of them being, who really belongs here? Who should be my fellow citizen in this kingdom? Who is it? In other words, what are their characteristics? Now, in normal kingdoms and empires and countries and so on, uh, would say things like, it must be somebody who was born in this country. Uh, we will say something like, it must be someone who, like back home in Zambia, who carries a national registration card. Or if it's somebody who's moved into your country, you say someone who has got a green card. And so on and so forth. You, you, anybody other than that, you sort of asking questions. How, how did he get in here? They must have used some path in the desert between Mexico and, and Texas or something to find themselves here. Uh, we, we need to get them out. You begin to raise those kinds of, of questions. Who really belongs here? What are their characteristics? But also, you begin to ask questions that arise out of that, and it's questions like, okay, what is it that really, really, really matters in this kingdom? What is it that we should be concentrating on? Now, it is that which causes the Apostle Paul here to give us the negative. And he says, it's not a matter of eating and drinking. That if you are beginning to look at that as what ought to determine who should be here, and what really matters here, you've missed the primary issue with respect to the distinct peculiarities of the kingdom. It is not that. Now, where does Paul get this eating and drinking from? Well, you can't miss the fact that... um, Uh, The the earlier part of chapter 14 has these words. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Listen to this. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So that's really where he is getting this phrase, eating and drinking. We can also add the observance of days, which he has already talked about in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should observe, rather, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So, what does Paul have in mind when he's saying 
It's not a matter of eating and drinking. He's obviously bringing out the fact that the, the, the primary distinct peculiarities of the kingdom has nothing to do with the externals, the kind of things that in the natural world are concentrated on. We will see in a few minutes the implications of all that. But I, I, I still want us to, to grasp that. That it's, it's got nothing to do with externals. In other words, you can have the right food and still go to hell. You can externally observe the right days and still go to hell. Now that's very hard for most of us to swallow. Because the Christian faith walks in human bodies. We are not disembodied spirits that have floated into this auditorium. We had to observe a time to be here, and we are meeting in a physical structure. We had our music through physical instrumentation. But the point of the Apostle Paul is this, that you can be in this physical building at the right time with the right instruments and still go to hell. The primary element of the kingdom of God is spiritual. We'll see that tomorrow when he says, it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not primarily a matter of the outward. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Colossians, puts it this way. Colossians and chapter 2 beginning with verse 16. It says that, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. In other words, eating and drinking. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, the observing of days. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says further in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not test, do not test. Referring to things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. And then notice what he says. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, these outward physical elements, they are not the ones that actually arrest sin in the human heart. They do not and they cannot. The kingdom of God 
does not comprise the externals. To the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, I'll read beginning a little earlier. The Apostle Paul, I'll begin from verse 7, the Apostle Paul makes the point that these things neither draw you closer to God nor take you away from him. Beginning with verse 7, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. There it is. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. We need to realize that. That as Jesus said to his disciples, it's not what you eat that makes you holy or unholy. It's what comes out of you (laughs) that makes you holy or unholy. And yet you often find that it's these things that in fact cause such serious divisions among the people of God. that literally split an entire church into half. I I remember a few years ago, somebody, I just want to illustrate it with uh, a guitar. It's tied together so well, I don't want to break it. Uh, (laughs) uh, Saying to me that playing instruments, and a person really, really meant it, playing instruments in God's church is sinful, it's, it's wicked, it's, it's used very strong words. So I, I, I got a guitar, and I just strummed the string, which is what I was about to do. I just said, okay, so if you are in church, and then you go, ding, Does the Holy Spirit suddenly leave the entire place? Because, I mean, the amount of energy that was being poured into this argument. I said, just, so everything's okay, you know, until somebody just strums that string once. Ding! And suddenly... There's so much wickedness and evil and sin and, and, and God is, 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 is so angry with the whole place. His spirit leaves. Of course, the person was very upset with me <laughs> for trivializing a very important thing. What Paul is saying is this that you can strum that string and go to heaven, or you can strum that string and go to hell. Because at the end of the day, it's not the string that brings you closer to God or the string that takes you away from him. The kingdom of God is not a matter of these external. It's not, he is saying. And so he's saying to the brethren here, don't destroy the church over things that are secondary, that in and of themselves 
don't make you any more spiritual or take you the opposite direction. Now, let me quickly add this. That in this text, in this passage, the Apostle Paul was primarily dealing with the strong. Remember what I said, from verse 1 to verse 12, he was dealing with the weak and he was saying to them, don't pass judgment on those who, whose liberties enable them to do what you cannot do with these externals. Don't. From verse 13 downwards, he's now talking to the strong. And basically what he's saying is this, that if you hold back your freedoms and your liberties, it's not like you are losing anything. You're not. Why? Because the kingdom of God does not comprise those things. And so he says, if we can just quickly go back to the text in verse uh, 20. Verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So the point that the Apostle Paul is making here is simply the fact that to the strong I am saying that do not stubbornly hold on to things as though for dear life's sake when, when you really analyze it, they are not what makes you spiritual. They are not. So for the sake of the unity of the kingdom of God, so that we may be able to pray, we may be able to minister to one another through God's word, that we may be able to do God's work together, we should be willing to say, I will cut back on my liberties for the sake of unity. That's basically what he is saying here. Or if we can quickly jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. Maybe let me begin from verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, and this is the point, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Stumble. So within the context of the words that are being spoken by Paul here, he's really talking to the strong. And he is saying, for the sake of the health, the atmosphere within the kingdom, be mature enough to say, my number one priority is to ensure that there is an atmosphere conducive for prayer, for teaching, for laboring together. If there is something that I am doing that is hindering that, I should stop it. Simple. I should stop it. It is my freedom. But I want us together 
to go forward. Now, of course, as we go forward together, as we learn together, the weak become stronger and in due season, by strong, I don't just mean strong believers, but having consciences that are able to deal with these matters, we are consequently able to go forward together. That's really the point that is in this text, that we may learn to distinguish who really belongs here, what are their characteristics, what really matters in God's kingdom. And we conclude, it is not mere externals. Let me try and put it this way as I close. That this is the one area that put our Lord Jesus Christ on collision course with the Pharisees in his own day. It was because they so emphasized externals that they ended up missing the heart of the matter. What true Christianity was all about. So, for instance, the Lord Jesus Christ says, and this is just a, a quick point that I'm, I'm quoting here from um, Matthew 23 and verse 16. Um, the whole chapter deals with this matter. Um, what to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if someone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Now, it's that kind of splitting of things that's completely devoid of true spirituality that Jesus, rather that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. Uh, in this particular case, he says, you blind guides, which is greater, the gold or the temple and so on. And then later on, verse 20. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And here's the point. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, ultimately, it is that which is spiritual, the reality of God that actually matters. Rather than being carried away with these physical things. Now, what did he really swear by? Was it the temple or the gold of the temple? Come on! Those are not the things through which we actually grow spiritually. And so Jesus was saying to them, you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. So let me ask as we sit here today, what is it that really matters to you? Or let me begin when you are relating to the brethren here and you are asking the question, should they really be part of my life? Should they really be part of my church? Should they really be part of the inner circle of my fellowship? What criteria are you using? Because if it's externals, external then what you really belong to is a club. It's not the Christian church. It can be a political party, but it's certainly not the Christian church. When you're asking, when there are issues that you, you are wrestling with in, in a member's meeting, And you, you are waxing eloquent. You are even feeling hot under the collar. <laughs> what are the issues there that, that you are really being so 
fastidious about. Because again, if it is mere externals, you are missing the entire point concerning the nature of the kingdom of God. Now tomorrow, we'll deal with the positive. But I just want for tonight, for you to really challenge yourself. What is it that to you really matters in the kingdom life that you've now found yourself in? Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God in heaven, forgive us for the many times when we make the life of the people of God in the church of God next to impossible over things that in themselves do not engender true godliness. Forgive us. Forgive us for the way in which we have destroyed the spirit of prayer, the spirit of mutual edification, the ability to work together as a church for the furtherance of your kingdom because of mere externals. Father, forgive us. Help us to repent of such attitudes, O oh Lord. To thoroughly repent that we might truly glorify you in your church, in our kingdom life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.